Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. There's a new translation of a play by someone named Seneca out called The Madness of Hercules. And the translator of the play is our own Dana Joya. Uh, first things is claiming <laughs> Dana Joya as, as one of the uh, part, part, of the, part of the group uh, with a long introduction uh, included as well. And so Dana is here again, as he was a few weeks ago, to discuss his new volume of poetry, this time the play and Seneca. And the history of tragedy in general, if we can get into that. Uh, before I welcome him, <clears throat> let me mention that new volume of poems once again called Meet Me at the Lighthouse. Uh, just out. Anyway, welcome again, Dana. It's good to be back. Uh, and, I, and I should probably explain that my Seneca book is a sort of centaur. Uh, it's one half book about Seneca and one half poetic translation of one of his great tragedies. The, uh, the op- that, that, that introduction, actually, I read, I read through, through it very closely. Yeah, it's much more than an introduction. It's really, it's really a full essay on who Seneca was and the history of Seneca in, in actually the, the history of literary criticism and performance as well. But first, Dan, for our listeners, why don't you just tell us who was Seneca? Well, it's easy to... Uh, for first things readers to understand Seneca's age because he's an almost exact contemporary of Jesus. Uh, he was born in 4 BC in Cordova, Spain into an extremely important Roman family. They were Spaniards, but they were uh, integral parts of the Roman Empire. Uh, his father was Lucius Annius Seneca, the elder, and he was the most famous rhetorician in Rome. Now, rhetoric is not a big uh, uh, pursuit academic discipline now, but in Roman times, if you were uh, the leading uh, teacher of rhetoric, the leading practitioner of rhetoric, it would make you the equivalent of the president of Harvard in terms of the academic prestige you would have, or as a, you'd be almost the equivalent of the member of the Supreme Court. So it was an extremely prestigious uh, uh, position. He had three kids. Um, Seneca became the, really the greatest Stoic philosopher of Roman history. Uh, another one of his sons became one of the leading financiers of the Roman Empire. And his son, Junius Gallo, uh, he changed his last name because he was adopted by a wealthy uh, Roman who had no child. Junius Gallo, Christians know, because he was the judge 
who presided over Paul the Apostle's trial in Greece when a group of, of Jews hmm. uh, you know, brought uh, Paul in there and, you know, and accused him of all sorts of, of disruptive crimes. And Junius Gallo found Paul innocent. So uh, curiously, although Seneca is a pagan philosopher, uh, his life and the life of his brother intersects with early Christianity. Uh, Seneca was a public figure almost immediately, uh, but he was, uh, Caligula disliked him because he was such a powerful, reasonable person that Caligula was, was going to murder him, uh, but he was talked out of it because they said, well, this Seneca's so sickly, he'll probably die anyway. So Seneca, you know, went into uh, uh, an exile, and then he was exiled again um, uh, under Claudius. Uh, then he was famously brought back uh, by Nero's mother to be Nero's tutor. And for a number of years, uh, Seneca essentially co-administered the Roman Empire with a general named Burrus. And they kept Nero in line. It was uh, thought to be the, the best governed uh, period of time in the Roman Empire. But when Burrus died, Seneca could no longer control Nero. No one could control Nero. And eventually, uh, Nero uh, ordered Seneca's death. Uh, Seneca committed suicide hmm. in, in this very consciously imitating Socrates' suicide, you know, surrounded by his disciplines, you know, you know, disciples talking to them. So anyway, Seneca is this major figure in Roman history and a major figure in Roman philosophy. Now, what people have forgotten is that he was also the greatest tragedian between the Greeks and the Renaissance. And in fact, he is the most influential single tragedian, probably, uh, until Shakespeare. Anybody in the Renaissance who was writing tragedy was patterning themselves after Seneca's plays, which are so, so no longer taught. Well, well, that that was that was my next question right off the bat. Why isn't Seneca as known today as Sophocles and Euripides? Well, there's, I think there's two or three reasons. One is that in the 18th century, uh, it, it was decided largely by the Germans uh, that Greek literature was in every respect superior to Roman literature. Um, I think that's partially you know, because Roman literature was still associated with Catholicism and the Latin church. It was also this, this, no, this, uh, uh, this notion that the Greeks were the original creators of these forms and the Ro Romans had these dreary uh, imitations. Uh, and in Seneca's case, Seneca's plays are very violent and, and very uh, rhetorical. They're full of extended speeches. And, th and this was considered deficits. In fact, I quote a famous uh, historian of, tra of tragedy who gives this long list of everything that's wrong with Seneca's plays. Now, I asked mm -hmm. myself something really simple. If he was so bad... Why did Corneille, Racine, Shakespeare, uh, Calderon, Lope de Vega, why did all of the Renaissance dramatists love him, and how did he inspire the greatest period of European tragedy? And so if you go back 
Hmm. You know, you realize that Shakespeare, that uh, Seneca's plays are not like Sophocles' plays, but they're actually quite wonderful in their own way. And uh, I think that the closest thing they are in some ways is to opera, tragic opera, which you hmm. can make a linear connection between Seneca and the development of tragic opera in the Renaissance. Hmm. You know, I, I have to say, I hadn't read The Madness of Hercules before, but the, the speeches are, are stunning. And little lines, little snippets. I, I think you preserved very well the, the epigrammatic moments where you get sort of moral commentary uh, upon life and uh, in, in this world that are worth, you know, are, are worth, you know, writing down in, in your copybook. And so I, I, I'd love to see Seneca on more syllabi and more performances. But Dana, we've got, I mean, if we, if we jump into the play, you, you mentioned the violence that we get. Do you think the violence in the plays is part of the, the fact that they're not, I mean, some of the violence in, in Hercules here, it's very disturbing. Well, uh, it, I mean, this is... Is that part it, of the problem? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a notion that, you know, in Greek tragedy, there's violent, tragic events, but they always happy, happen off stage. And someone comes in and says, Hercules has killed his wife and his children. Everyone is sad. And, uh, and so the, the violence is at one level... In Seneca, the the violence isn't center stage, but you know the, the you know the violence is one step closer. You know, there's there's it's happening just behind a wall on a stage. You know, when when Hercules, uh, let, me, let me tell you this, the basic plot of the play, which yes, is yes, uh, Hercules has been given twelve labors, and he has to complete these labors uh, to earn his freedom. The last of these is to go down to the underworld and bring forth Cerberus, uh, who is the guardian, you know, of Tartarus. You know, the guardian of the underworld. This is, by Roman terms, a tremendously sacrilegious art. You know, act. I mean, the things that are in hell are supposed to stay in hell. They pollute the upper world to bring them there. This is very similar to Christian belief in the sense that. Uh, it is a pollution to bring demonic things into ordinary lives. You know, uh, you know they are to be separated. You know, from you know from uh, the world that God has created, uh, and so this uh, Hercules enters by dragging Cerberus onto stage, and so the, I mean it's, these are very dramatic. This is the kind of thing you'd see in Baroque opera. It's the kind of things, frankly, you see in movies. When you read Seneca, you go, oh, my God, this is Quentin Tarantino. Uh, you know, if you think of Quentin Tarantino, you have these characters like, you know, that just give these long speeches and then they have these violent acts. And there's a, a wonderful effect, a disturbing effect, I find, in Tarantino's case about using rhetoric and a kind of poetic language with, you know, with violence. But that comes right out of Seneca. And... Uh, so I think that actually can, people today read Seneca, they don't find him unbelievably violent because uh, it's very consistent with popular entertainment. And in fact, it's very consistent with uh, Elizabethan and Jacobean drama. I mean, if you've seen the Revengers yeah. tragedy, if you've seen the Spanish tragedy, if you've seen uh, Hamlet, 
Hamlet kills people on stage, and we don't, you know, we don't think twice about it uh, because it's, you know, it's part right. of this of the whole dark, tragic vision. So that's, you know, comes from Seneca, who, who invents this thing called the revenge tragedy, which is what we see in its greatest uh, uh, manifestation in Hamlet, where Hamlet is going to revenge the supposed death of his father, uh, killed by his brother, with the mother being complicit. So. Now, what I find interesting about Seneca is that, you know, Seneca's plays have these long, brilliant speeches. I mean, he was, the, you know, one of the, he and Cicero were probably the two of the most famous orators, and their job was to come and talk in a way that just gripped people's imagination. And so in the tragedies, Seneca has these characters come onto stage and they give these uh, flamboyant, brilliant speeches, but he usually then... Uh, ends each section of them with a little aphorism, a little maxim, uh, and you know, these memorable things which actually people quote today. Uh, and so you have yeah. this, this effect of expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction. And the whole play is written uh, with a religious and moral perspective uh, that you know, comes out of this violent act, which is where the, go where the goddess Juno makes... She cannot defeat Hercules, so the only way that she can undermine Hercules is to make him go crazy, where he uses his strength against himself, uh, and you know, ends up in the, in the death of his children, which is the same plot as Euripides, Heracles. So it's not it's not a, the the violence is, is not something that Seneca invented, although his depiction is a little more graphic. But yeah. there's the two reasons that I would uh, recommend this play to people. Uh, are, uh, the reason one is Dante, the reason two is T.S. Eliot. Uh, this is a play that Dante read, learned from, and used in his Inferno. Because the third act of The Madness of Hercules is a long description of the underworld. And when you read this, you'll, you know, you'll right. recognize right away how much Dante borrowed. People never acknowledge Seneca, but uh, Seneca is the missing piece between, you know, Virgil and Dante. The other reason is that Seneca was an author who T.S. Eliot uh, found fascinating. And in fact, T.S. Eliot quotes the madness of Hercules twice uh, in his poetry. So it's, uh, you know, most famously in the uh, opening of Marina. You know, which is uh, has these this line in Latin, and that's the line that Hercules says as he comes out of his murderous madness, where he doesn't know where is he, what shore is he, what country is he in, uh, and you know that's used for you know in Eliot's poem. I think is a way of saying that the speaker of of this, who's a Shakespearean character, by the way, it's you know, uh, is coming out of a kind of madness and, and depression and recognizing his daughter. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, so the, the, this, is, uh, this play is one of the missing links in Western literature. But the other the reason to read this book is that, you know, I have what amounts to a short book on Seneca uh, that starts this off. The, you know, it's a 57-page uh, you know, introduction which gives you Seneca's life, but more importantly, it it shows 
how the whole Western notion of tragedy doesn't really come just out of the Greeks. It comes out of Rome. It comes out of Seneca. And Seneca was the only ancient author that the people in the Renaissance knew. And so uh, the idea mm. of tragedy and even a lot of the idea of opera comes out of Seneca's work. And so, I mean, if you don't know his work, I think that you really don't know European drama. You can't really talk about tragedy intelligently because Shakespeare never read a poem, a play by Euripides or Sophocles or Aeschylus. Uh, they were unavailable. Seneca was also hmm. the first classical author to be completely translated into English. That's how important he was. His, his complete poems was edited uh, by John Donne's uncle, uh, who uh, was hmm. the head of the Je the, the Jesuit delegation uh, uh, in England, and so you know there's a uh, you know um, so he, anyway, uh, Seneca's important. He's interesting. He's fascinating. And curiously, right now there's a popular revival of Seneca's philosophy, Stoicism, in the United States. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you, I'm going to add uh, on, the, on the Shakespeare issue, uh, you even give some credit to Seneca for the glorious language of Elizabethan tragedy, don't you? Yeah, the... If you were an Elizabethan schoolboy, now I don't mean a university student, I mean a schoolboy, you went to grammar school. Now, why do they call it grammar school? It's because you were learning Latin grammar. Um, and so you weren't being taught English grammar in grammar school, you were being taught Latin grammar, and if you were lucky, maybe a little bit of Greek. And so uh, you do all your schoolwork in the morning, and then in the afternoons, you would spend your time translating Seneca, Plautus, Cicero, Virgil. So I think we can be relatively sure that as a schoolboy, uh, Shakespeare knew Seneca's plays and probably translated them as school exercises. And these are great uh, great things for a schoolboy to do because people are killing each other. There's monsters, there's ghosts, there's gods, there's demons. You know, and this is, I mean, this is the, the monster movies of Elizabethan culture. And so uh, Shakespeare, I believe, was fundamentally formed. His notion of what tragedy was came out of Seneca. So what's tragedy? You know, tragedy is one of the modes of human literature uh, it basically gives you a vision that we have no f freedom in our lives. We are the v victims. We are the playthings of fate. Some people have happy fates. Some people don't. But if you get caught up in the machinery of tragedy, which is to say 
destiny is, has determined you for a tragic end, you cannot avoid it. What you can do, however, is to defy it and articulate your defiance even if you're doomed. So if you think of, of Hamlet, for an example, Hamlet dies uh, at the end of his play. Denmark is lost. His, his, his beloved is dead. His whole family is dead. The court is destroyed. Uh, and so why, you know, why is it a great play when it's just so unhappy? It's because scene by scene, act by act, Hamlet articulates uh, what it feels like to be the plaything of fate. What is it like to try to to, to take revenge, uh, you know, against you know, get action? You know, what is it like to make the decision to live and not kill yourself, to be or not to be? That is the question. And so, uh, I think when people see Hamlet for the first time, they're surprised by it because it's mostly glorious talk, punctuated by quick murders or suicides. <laughs> uh, and that's Seneca, which is this notion of these of these uh, tremendously brilliant, impassioned characters who come forward and talk about what it means to suffer as a human being. Uh, and that's the tra yeah. that's the tragedy. You, you know, uh, you you say in your introduction that in spite of Seneca's pagan outlook. There were things about his Stoicism that actually appealed to early Christian thinkers, including Augustine. What did they like about Seneca's outlook? Well, you know, Seneca, when you read, I was actually, last night I was reading some of Seneca's essays. I was trying to read them in Latin, uh, and I have, you know, with, with the Globe <laughs> Classical Edition. Seneca is so very much like an uh, like the church fathers in some respects. Now, Seneca uh, is in a pagan culture. He's in a, a polytheistic culture, but he believes in a single uh, divine God, a single omnipotent God. He has a very Protestant understanding of that God. He thinks that God, through his Holy Spirit, uh, inhabits us, and we uh, gain wisdom and strength by pursuing the divine that is within us. So, I mean, you look at that, uh, you know, that plus his, his tragic sense of life is not all that far from John Calvin. Uh, and Seneca believes that you should le live a life of moderation, of reason, of humanity, of charity, and uh, that you should uh, put self-control over your, your appetites. So, you know, Seneca was one of the richest men in the Roman Empire. He ate very simple fare, and he, you know, also he has two very famous essays on slavery. Now, slavery at that point was a universal human institution. Every country in the world had slaves. And Seneca understood there's no way that he was going to abolish slavery in the Roman Empire, but he basically began by saying, slaves are just like you and me. They've been, on, they've been on the losing side of a war, so they've enslaved. They need to be treated with dignity because they're humans. And in fact, one of the, the ways that, that Seneca feels that if you're working on a farm with your slaves, if you're working on your estate with your slaves, you should eat your meals with the slaves. You should share the same food with them, 
the same table. So they are the losers of fate because they've been imprisoned and enslaved, but you know, they needed to be treated with dignity. This is a radical point of view, radical point. This is almost as radical as when Jesus says, we make no distinctions between the free and the, and the enslaved. When Paul makes this, this is, this is nonsense to the pagan world because you know, we're free and they're slaves. Hmm. But so you see with, you know, with, uh, with, you know, with Seneca, he eats plain food, he drinks in moderation. He believes, uh, you know, you know, in, in seemingly in, in in celibacy outside of marriage, uh, you know, and and you know, you're having your spirit control your body. This is entirely consistent with the church fathers, and in fact, they loved him because, uh, you know, they saw him. First of all, they believed that Saint Paul and Seneca were friends. They believe, there was a series of correspondence between them. And it's not unreasonable to think that Seneca and St. Paul would have known one another. They were both public figures in Rome at the same time. And we do know that uh, Seneca's brother uh, saved Paul's life. But anyway, they would, so they felt that Seneca was, you know, had a kind of dispensation. And the, and the early church fathers realized there were very valuable things about Greek and Roman culture that if they preserved, it brought Christianity to a higher level of, in, a, in its philosophical and theological understanding. So St. Jerome wanted to declare Seneca a saint, you know, which is a, an odd thing to do for the tutor of Nero. Uh, you know, luckily the church stopped him, but, you know, but, but there's, mu there's much to be found. When you read Seneca's essays, you find uh, a kind of stoicism that's deeply sympathetic to, uh, to Christian sensibilities. Yeah. You, you know, uh, as, as we wrap up here, Dana, we, we, there, there's so much in the play. I mean, that opening speech by Hera is, is astonishing. As we go through all the, all the events, what happens to the family, what happens to the, the tyrant who, who threatens Hercules' family, and then we have the end, the killings, what are we left with at the end? The audience walks out. Is there is there any consolation that they should draw? I mean, does Hera win uh, here finally? Uh, she, she's lost with all the 12 labors because that only made Hercules more renowned in, in the ancient world. Uh, but here, here she gets she gets her revenge. But consolation. Well, uh, does this play provoke stoicism? Well, You could speculate how a Roman saw the play, but as a modern reader, I'd make three observations. First of all, I think this play is a moral critique of polytheism. It shows the gods as petty, vengeful, uh, uh, evil beings. And so there's, you know, Juno, uh, commands no, no moral authority or respect. She's simply a powerful person trying to, to inflict pain on, on mortals. So the, I think the first thing is it's a critique of, of polytheism. And that is, I think, conscious on Seneca's part. If you read his essays, he, he's a monotheist uh, who understands you know, the, the ceremonial necessity of these things but doesn't believe in them. The second thing is when does this happen to uh, Hercules at the greatest moment of his triumph. He has become world famous 
for completing his 12 uh, labors, he comes back to Thebes uh, at the height of his strengths, and then he creates the most, performs the most despicable actions of his life, slaughtering his wife and his young children. And, and I think that is essentially the most dramatic possible uh, representation of, of the power of destiny, to take the most powerful man in the world and bring him to the, a level of complete humiliation. Uh, I mean, the only thing comparable to it in classical tragedy, I think, is Medea killing her own children, which is somehow more evil because she's not mad. She's simply vengeful. She is hmm. rather like Juno. She has taken the, you know, the classical gods' amoralism and, and, and inflicted it on her own children. Uh, but aside from that, I think that, that Hercules' murders are, are the most appalling thing in, in classical tragedy. But the third thing that I think that it does is to set up a moral universe, which is to say that Hercules' actions, uh, even though they're motivated by, ad, uh, by madness, are his own doing in that he has uh, profaned the underworld. He's come and he's, and he's taken these things which the, the natural order have demanded stay hidden, you know, and it comes to, to a very basic truth. There's, certain, there's truths of darkness and there's truths of the light. There are the truths of God and there are truths of demons. And they have been separated by God for a reason. And if you descend into the infernal, into the demonic, if you bring it up as a showpiece, uh, there is no escaping the damage that that will do. I think that that is, in some sense, a uh, a profoundly Christian notion as well as a pagan notion. So I do think that the play, for all of its violence, is a deeply moral play, and and certainly those things have been articulated in these brilliant speeches. Uh, and that's what I tried to do in this play is to to translate it both as poetry and as something that can be put on a stage. And in fact, an earlier version of it was staged quite successfully in New York. The play is The Madness of Hercules by Seneca, translated by Dana Joya. Dana, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much. And, it's, and I should point out one thing. It's a Wise Blood book. Uh, you know, Wise Blood is this fantastic, uh, uh, you know, Catholic publisher. And they bring out, you know, books of the highest quality. So, you know, you'd, uh, it's important, I think, to support them as a press. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.